This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You might have heard the old saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. This proverb addresses one of the more challenging aspects of running a global company, that uh, understanding of cultural differences. Our next guest says cultural competency is no longer optional, that in today's world businesses, they can't compete without it. Dean Foster is the founder of DFA Intercultural Global Solutions and also an adjunct professorial lecturer at American University School of International Service. He's also author of a series of books entitled The Global Etiquette Guide. He has plenty of advice on how international companies become culture-wise. Dean, welcome to the show. Dan, thank you, and a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I guess let's start with the definition of cultural competency. Right. You know, um, it's the 21st century, and uh, there's really no wiggle room at this point for cultural ignorance. So the opposite of cultural ignorance is cultural competency, the ability to understand that people will be thinking differently, they'll be doing business differently, they've got different expectations about how teams need to be managed, how we communicate with each other, how we solve problems with each other. All of the aspects of business will change and will be affected by culture. So if you're suddenly on a team working with people in another country or on a multicultural team where you've got 20 people in 20 different countries working on a project, let's say, you've got to understand that we're going to be seeing all of these aspects of our work differently. And so we've got to line up and and understand those the cultural influences that are at the table. Is there a is there a better general recognition of these issues right now amongst companies? Well, you know, it's interesting. When we first started doing this work, and I'm going back about 25 years now, um, there, there really was no recognition that this was on the table. Um, after all, we do business as business as business. And, and then only when companies started to stub their toe, when they would start to work with another culture and run into things that they didn't expect, and things would slow down and things would cost more and things would take more time and there'd be minefields that they didn't anticipate. Then they started to become aware of the fact that maybe there's something else going on that we've got to manage, and mm. that would be the cultural issue. Today, I think in with the mature companies, the Fortune 500s, they've been doing this international work for 20, 30, 40 years now, so they get it. They know that they've got to develop cultural competency, um, co- competencies with their teams. The, the challenge we have is often getting uh, startups to understand this, because okay. the interesting thing is that in today's world, when you, get, when you start up, you're instantly global. You don't evolve to global. You don't have a domestic business and then go international and then go global. Uh, today, you have a startup in your garage and you're global. And so uh, we've got to sometimes convince folks that they've got to get these skills immediately, right from the start. That would that would lead me to believe that, that part of the challenge is, is that understanding that if you're a startup, especially if you're a tech startup, you are global right out of the gate because of how we are connected. That's right, instantly. So you're working with India you have, immediately. And, and therefore, you've got to understand the fundamentals of Indian culture that are going to affect how Indians prefer to communicate, 
how they make decisions, right. how they organize themselves in teams, uh, their expectations about the role of a manager, um, how they solve conflict. All of these things are going to be different in India than they are in Indiana. And if you've got m- many people on, on teams, if you've got people in France and China and, and Argentina working on this project as well, you're going to overcomplicate. It's going to be even more complicated. But what was what, was there a mindset change in this in general? Because I would think if you went back 30 or 40 years, probably you saw more examples of the company keeping policy in place that may work here in the United States and and realistically not work in another country, but they still kept the policy in place. And it was almost like the company expected the, the people, the local people working in that market to, you know, to to bend to the policy of the United States and not to what might be the the, the cultural aspect of their particular country. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, um, because when companies first started doing this, you know, uh, and again, we're going back, let's say, a decade or more, um, several decades, actually, uh, what, what you had were companies that made the assumption that we've been so successful at what we do, let's just export that way of doing things to the new office that we're opening up in, in at the time, Tokyo or Frankfurt. But, uh, but, but what happened is that they ran into problems. And they figured out, oops, you know, we, we, we're doing something wrong. Let's figure out what that is. And inevitably, it was a cultural issue that they had to manage. Um, so there was a slow and gradual awareness as they went from being a domestic company to an international company to then mm-hmm. a global company. Um, but that awareness is required immediately from the start right now. So how did then – and you – have talked about this that there is a differentiation between what might be considered an international company and what is a global company. Right. Well, for me, and you know, an international company is whatever you did in in back home in in let's say the states or wherever headquarters was. It's a replication of that in in a foreign market. So it, it worked so well. We became so successful at what we did in San Francisco. Let's just do that same thing now that we're opening up an office in Paris. Um, and so you are working internationally, but in no way are you a global company. Because I think the differentiation between international and global is when you realize that the way you do it in Paris has to be different from the way we did it in San Francisco. And when you start to understand the differences and the requirements that you have to do to to make it work locally in Paris, um, then you start to develop, I think, a more, more global perspective. I think ultimately, a global company is one that then takes what they've learned, the best practices of all of the international parts of their company, Paris, Jakarta, everywhere, and brokers those differences throughout the entire organization so that everybody can learn about the best practices that are available to them. Uh, Because cultures really do present us with the opportunity of doing things in a different kind of way. And that that gives us the opportunity to maybe solve problems in a different kind of way. So if we can learn that what we had to do differently in Paris actually might help us back in San Francisco – then that's a really global company. How much then do these concepts probably impact hiring in the locations, in the other locations around the world, both at the 
at the lower levels of, of, of a particular office, but also in the C-suite hiring in, in that particular location? Well, you know, we, today we know that um, in most organizations, uh, you can't get a promotion to the C-suite, and you're probably not going to move up to leadership level without some kind of international experience or international assignment. Right. So, so people, organizations are looking for people who have either international experience prior to coming to the company um, or who have, uh, are willing to go on an international assignment to, de- to develop this cultural experience competency. Um, so how, however we find them, this has now become a requirement for, for the C-suite uh, because we want people who think globally. So it, we're going to recruit people who have these skills. And the question is, how do we assess whether they have these skills? And um, but, but that assessment is going on. And, and the more we can identify people with these skills, the more opportunity they have for moving up to leadership level. What about the, the, the actual the HR department itself? Uh, and obviously, it could very well be one set of, uh, of standards and mindset in, in the United States in comparison to what might be in another country. Yeah, that's very true. And, and what we need to do is help develop cultural awareness and cultural competencies in HR in management level uh, divisions, at the leadership level, at every single level, but HR certainly, because they're the ones who are responsible for recruiting and finding this talent. We're joined by Dean Foster, founder of DFA Intercultural Global Solutions and also author of the uh, series, The Global Etiquette Guide. You're listening to Knowledge Award here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Your comments at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. There also has to be the recognition uh, if one set of standards are needed in, in a particular location somewhere around the world, there has to be the recognition back here in the United States that 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 set of standards may have to be slightly different than, than what we're seeing here in the U.S. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, I think it takes us back to the old slogan, which is, you know, think global but act local. Or, or a global company is really a local company everywhere. And, and the fact that um, we have to adapt what we do successfully at headquarters so that it can be successful locally elsewhere. And, and I think that's the strategy. That's the mindset that we need to approach working abroad with. And um, one way of thinking of it is that, look, headquarters back in the States sets global strategy, but that strategy has to be tactically implemented locally abroad. And, and that means that the way we do it has to be different place by place according to the culture. Um, but what we're doing can be the same everywhere. So it's not what we do, but I think it's how we do it that changes. How does how does this mindset in the end impact bottom line for many companies that 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 are global entities? Yeah, I, I think it's a critical bottom line issue. You know, uh, it's it would be wrong, I think, to think of culture and the HR aspects of how it affects our work as a soft issue. In fact, it's a very hard bottom line issue because uh, we know, for example, that um, when you when you take a task and do it domestically, if you take that same task and try to do it internationally or globally. 
then then there is a 60% chance that it's going to cost more, it's going to take more time, and it's going to have a higher rate of failure right. than the same task if you did it domestically. And when you interview the, the, the folks who are responsible for these global projects, or even something as simple as just expatriating a, an international assignee and family, if you talk to the folks who are responsible for the success of these things, um, they will tell you that if you translate that lost income, uh, the extra time, the higher rate of failure, and and translate that into won and dollars and pounds and euro, that becomes massive. And you're taking these multi-billion-dollar global projects and you're putting mm-hmm. them at risk if you don't have people who can communicate effectively with each other. There's also. And, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Finish up. Yeah, so, so the, the, the bottom line on this is that this is a very hard financial issue. Um, when you look at the cost of an international assignment, for example, of moving a, an international assignee and, let's say, their partner and their kids um, from, uh, from headquarters in Chicago and put them in Shanghai, and you're going to move this person precisely because they have the expertise that you want. Right. They're the ones who know how to had to pull the switch. You had to do the job. They were so successful in Chicago, you now sent them to Shanghai. And if the family cannot adjust to the local culture, then the return on that investment, which is, by the way, about a million dollars when you add up all of the explicit and implicit costs associated with an international assignment, uh, a traditional international assignment of about three years for a family of, let's say, mom and dad and two kids, you know, mm-hmm. speaking very traditionally. Those costs add up to about a million-dollar investment that the company is making. If they don't stay, if they can't adapt to the culture, you're not getting the return on the investment. How mu- a very hard bottom line. How much then, then do companies and maybe – even at, at to a degree at the college level, do we have to have a better understanding of this particular issue, and also the, the the maybe the different dynamic of skills that you need when you're talking about an international assignment? You're absolutely correct, and and I like to think that the work that we do is kind of eventually putting ourselves out of business because what we're trying to, <laughs> what we're trying to do is develop these competencies and make organizations aware of the, of the necessity for them, um, and and I think that in a way it's kind of unfair to expect. Uh, major companies to foot the bill for training people to develop to develop cultural competencies. I mean, shouldn't an employer be able to expect that the people that they hire already come to them sure. with these skills? Uh, we, de- you know, in the schools, we we want people to develop all the uh, STEM skills that are required: the science, the math, the technology. Um, but we're not training them um, at, at a fundamental level to work globally. And so they come into a global organization and now they're hit with this cultural issue. And it becomes the responsibility of the HR department to very quickly, as fast as they can, ramp up these skills so that these folks don't put their these billion dollar projects at risk. Um, I'd like to see the day where the schools are doing this right. and the universities are doing this so that uh, we're, we're sending people into the workforce uh, with these skills already in place. Do you believe, though, that we will get to that point where it, it is it, it becomes an automatic because of how we are, as you laid out, if you're, you're a startup uh, and you're getting underway with your business, you're already a global company. Do you expect that, that we will have a better understanding of this 
as students are making their way through college and, and the universities will be able to help this so that we don't have this gap once once people are actually brought on board to a company and, and may have to move? Yeah, I, I think that's happening, um, but it's slow, right? And, and it, it needs to go a lot faster. Um, we're still finding ourselves having to speak about the value of cultural competency development, just as I'm doing with you now, um, because it's still something that's under the radar for the most part. Right. Um, I'd like to think that we can get this awareness behind us and just get some processes in place where we can develop this more quickly. Are there examples that you've seen of, uh, of companies that, that really have, have hit this on the, the nail on the head at this point? Uh, yes, I have. I've had the privilege of working with uh, some of those organizations, um, and uh, some of them are American, U.S.-based. Uh, many of them are European. Uh, it's interesting that in Europe there is an awareness of the need for this kind of information, and I think there has been for quite some time. Mm-hmm. But that, I think, is also a culturally uh, a cultural issue. Europeans are very familiar with the fact that they do experience cultural differences when they just go 20 miles down the road and cross a border. Right. Um, interestingly, one of the first countries to really get on board with cultural training was Japan back in the late 60s and 70s. Because when Japan, after the war, realized that the only way they were going to grow and develop the economy was was by doing business outside of Japan. They did so with the, also with the realization uh, that that the rest of the world was quite different from Japan, and that if they were going to work with companies in the U.S., they really had to understand U.S. culture. Uh, and so the Japanese really put a great effort into developing uh, cultural training for their people who were then working outside of Japan. Um, But the U.S. has come late to this whole game, and I think there are cultural reasons why we have. um, But but also, after World War II, the U.S. kind of found itself in charge. And um, I think the expectation was, well, if if we're so successful, the rest of the world will come to us and do it our way. I think we're learning now, of course, that that doesn't happen. Is it, though, is it maybe going one step too far for a company to have a global strategy on working with local, local markets in other countries, especially if they may have... 10 to 15 different markets around the globe, which, you know, may have each one of them being different in terms of, of, of the expectation of, of finance or days off, holidays, etc. Well, I think um, that you keep your global strategy so that your vision and what you want to do is, is the same everywhere. Um, but it's in the tactical implementation of that local a location by location that has to change with consideration for the culture and having so, the and having the flexibility to understand that that's right and having the resources locally who can help you understand that 844 Wharton is the number if you would like to join in 844-942-7866 or if you'd like send us a comment on Twitter at bizradio132 or my Twitter account which is at dan loney l o n e y 21 it's interesting going back to the, the the startups comment dean because 
I would venture a guess to say that there are a lot of startups out there that don't consider themselves to be a global company right out of the bat. And it's even if they did, it would probably be well down the the, the chain uh, of things that they would consider to be very important is having that global mindset. Yeah, and be, because they're so busy putting out the, the daily fires, and and the, and and because it's taking them thirty six hours a day just to develop their company, the last thing you want to have to think about is something as invisible and fuzzy as culture, and and I get that, but sooner or later they're going to have to come to grips with this issue, because it's on the plate, and it is especially on the plate. If you're working uh, globally, if you've got you know your, your a team of folks in India, um, then that's it. I mean, you're global, whether you know it or not. <laughs> yes, and, you, and there's no choice. You don't have any going back at that point. No, you don't. Dean Foster, founder of uh, DFA Intercultural uh, Global Solutions and author of the uh, of the series, The Global Etiquette Guide. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So having this mindset, uh, and, and I mentioned the hiring issue earlier, does it also then potentially lead the decision to who leads that particular office to being potentially more of a person of local nature than bringing somebody in from the United States to run that division? Yeah, you know that, and that's a complicated question because I think when when organizations first set up their international office, let's say they go out there and they set up that office in, in Shanghai, um, what they want to do is export the expertise from Chicago to Shanghai uh, because everything that you did that made you so successful in Chicago, let's give it a try in Shanghai, and a lot yeah. of it does work and will work. So they're usually sending someone to represent the corporate culture and the expertise from the home base into the into the offshore office. But sooner or later, that person finds out that there's a lot of expertise already there mm-hmm. and that it's Shanghai-specific expertise, and it's precisely the kind of expertise that they need um, in order to adapt all that great success from Chicago to the local market in Shanghai. So there has to be a balance of, of, of somebody bringing in the expertise from headquarters and somebody listening to the expertise that's available locally. Um, there's always a tension between the local office and the headquarters because the folks in the local office often don't appreciate the fact that they feel they have all the local knowledge that the company needs, and yet the company is sending somebody from Chicago to run the operations. There's often a resentment around that issue. At the same time, the um, the person from Chicago often has to be humbled uh, to realize once they get to Shanghai that they don't have all the answers and that they have to rely on this local expertise. Um, eventually, I think what happens is the uh, the person who's brought over from Chicago does a does their job, they do their job well, their three-year assignment is up, and they go on to another location or go home. And that that position then gets filled by a local who mm-hmm. has now also become familiar with the way things are done in Chicago, but also has the local expertise of, of Shanghai. And, I, and I've seen that kind of process go on. So I, I think you're talking about a long-term process where eventually the expertise that's required 
from both ends um, gets gets developed in individuals who are local um, in that location. Uh, but there's always going to be a need for folks from Chicago to come in there because the company culture is changing and the company right. direction is changing, and that information has got to be transferred. Best uh, best way to sum up what companies should should really be looking for here when they're talking about working with uh, an office overseas and the expectation of of what that culture may mean for that office. Well, if I if I would think very high level, and I hope this isn't too fuzzy and um, and in the sky, but I would say recognize the fact that you've got this cultural issue on your plate. It, you, it's easy to overlook it, but eventually it's going to come back and bite you if you don't manage it. And that means developing cultural competencies amongst the people who are touched by global work. And um, and then I would say approach it humbly. You don't have all the answers, and many of the answers might be found out there, and they may not only be um, constructive for working out there, but they may even be constructive for working back at home. Great having you with us today, Dean. Thank you very much for coming on. All the best, uh, and thank you again. Dan, thank you. And may I mention my website in case anyone is interested? Please do. Please do. Sure. It's uh, deanfosterglobal.com. Great. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. Thank you, Dan. Thank Bye-bye. you. All the best. Dean Foster, uh, founder of DFA Intercultural Global Solutions and author of The Global Etiquette Guide. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.